I am a human being and I killed human beings. Before I knew it, I had fired four shots at the door. I kept on shouting for Reva to phone the police. Tests are underway to determine if a serial killer is on the loose in Centurion Pretoria. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. In South Africa, 71 people are murdered every day. These are the stories of Africa's killers and criminals and what it takes to catch them. My name is Paul Llewellyn. I'm a journalist and true crime filmmaker. And my co-host, as always, to discuss crime on the continent is Gerard Labaskachny, the former cop and current head of LNS Threat Management, who led the investigative psychology section of the South African Police Service from 2001 until 2016. In his time there, he worked on over 300 serial murder and rape cases. And he is our profiler, who we're happy is no longer in the police, actually, because then we wouldn't be able to talk to him these days. <laughs> we wouldn't be able to do what we do. Please visit our YouTube page and subscribe, search pro and, and subscribe. You can search Profiler Africa to get yourself there. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify. Simply search Profiler on your favorite podcast platform. Um, and do share your favorite link. You can engage with us on our social pages. Our Twitter and Instagram handle is at Profiler Africa. Please also join the group on Facebook. If you have any questions or suggestions, we're happy to field them. You can email us on ProfilerAfricaInfo at gmail.com. Um, we do put up some interesting stuff, so check it out. Um, Wow. So we've been having some amazing conversations over the last uh, few weeks, Gerard, with some incredible people. Um, and today, interestingly, we're going kind of behind behind the, the, the investigators because to go out and to fight crime and in, in, in anywhere in the world, in South Africa, wherever, you have to have the right tools mm. at your disposal to go out there and do it. And of course, technology is, is advancing so quickly these days that it's, it's hard to kind of keep a grasp on what the latest tricks of the trade are. But we've got the perfect person here to discuss kind of uh, uh, those things that, that enhance um, law enforcement's ability to do what they do. His name is Peter Fryer. And um, maybe the best place to start, Jared, if I might, is simply asking Peter to kind of introduce himself and to explain kind of what what it is that he does and how his group, what his group of companies looks like and, and yeah, what service do you provide to local law enforcement, Peter? Hi, first of all, how are you doing? Hi, John. Welcome. <laughs> So my story, it's, a, it's not a long one, but it's a true one, and you might cry in the end. <laughs> but uh, you know, I think as far back as I can remember, I've always wanted to be a policeman. Um, I have amongst my uh, collection of you know, childhood memories a piece of paper that I drew on, wax crayon. I think I was five years old. And um, you know, I wrote a letter to, to the police. You know, dear Sergeant, um, you know, please will you give me some handcuffs with keys so that I can catch some crooks, you know, duly signed by me. And you know, I still have this. And I think that that's sort of one of the earliest memories of me wanting to be the policeman. You know, my father was a policeman. He served um, in the South African police until he retired in 1995, 1996. So, you know, if, if you think of what I do now, it's sort of a family business. He was involved with um, the establishment of the computer crime unit. So that's where my interest in technology you know, came about. So yeah, as a young boy, I often took things apart to see how they worked or you know, why they didn't work. And all I wanted to be when I grew up was a policeman. Mm. And um, you know, matriculating in 1994, you know, the winds of change were blowing across South Africa. My father was still a serving officer in the, in the South African police. And um, you know, his advice to me was, well, you can come to the police, but I don't think it's gonna be the place for you. You know, obviously, having seen you know, what my interests are, um, his advice to me was, you know, spend some time, you know, go figure yourself out, take a proverbial gap year. So I didn't end up joining the police. And by the time I'd grown my hair long and cut my hair short again and, you know, had the earrings and, you know, tried all the mind-altering substances, um, he'd retired out of the police and he started his own business. So it was a perfect opportunity for me to you know, join forces with him. And then I started a computer forensics company in 1995, I believe it was, 1996, early 96. And um, you know, at, at that stage, the extent of computer forensic investigation was primarily data recovery. And our only clients at that point were you know, finance houses, uh, liquidations company, guys that wanted to know about information that may have been deleted off of computers. So you know, we, weren't, we weren't hitting the, the big numbers. And you know, my dad being a police officer, 
um, you know, didn't have a commercial bone in his body. So we were sort of giving the services away. We heard, learned a hell of a lot. And, um, you know, we, we sort of figured it out. Um, I received some training, um, you know, analyst notebook, some data recovery stuff. Uh, he taught me a lot. Um, you know, in his experience with the South African police, as South Africa re-emerged into the international arena, uh, he and two others were responsible for re-establishing Interpol in South Africa. So that that was a you know, great sure. s- school of learning for me. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I learned whatever I could. And then, you know, I sort of carried on working with other law enforcement, ex-law enforcement. And in 2002, I joined a company called Risk Diversion. So I, I didn't start Risk Diversion. Mm-hmm. But I joined as a as an employee. Ultimately, became a director, a shareholder, and then in two thousand and eight, I took over ownership of this diversion. Okay. Um, prior to that, uh, we sold technology to the South African police. You know, I had the good fortune to be able to travel overseas, attend some conferences, and you know, while South Africa is really down at the bottom end of the globe, and we account for probably about one percent of the world's forensic sales. You know, when we talk about digital forensics. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got so much crime that uh, we do things differently. Yeah. You know, we found a way to work with the least amount of technology and solve the most amount of crime. So from about 2002, myself, you know, being as a diversion, started selling technology to the South African police. Um, during this time, between 2002 and 2004, I served as a police reservist as well. Um, so I was a reservist with Endangered Species Protection Unit. So using my sort of understanding of technology, you know, being trained as uh, an analyst notebook user, um, you know, I assisted the permanent force members in investigations. And that sort of how I got into the nitty gritties of law enforcement. So, you know, I was able to serve without you know, being paid to do it. And today, what does, what does your business look like? What, 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 what? Yeah. So over the over the last, I would say, decade, um, you know, I've seen how technologies moved along with the times. You know, South African police, they, they live in those seven deadly words. We've always done it this way. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult to convince them to do new things. So since about 2004, South African police have been using digital forensics for computers and cell phones. But, you know, the landscape's changed so quickly. And I would say since about 2010, um, we've been introducing the concept of you know, using technology in a different way, meaning that you know, traditionally your law enforcement guys have a lab and then the lab has you know, highly trained specialists. Some of them have uh, computer science degrees or you know, at least some sort of tertiary qualification. And um, you know, that, that's sort of where they keep the technology. It's also one of the reasons why the South African police's cyber division isn't 600 people. You know, it's now less than 50 people mm-hmm. because they don't allow non-technical people to do technical things. And, and that's, that's a sort of path that I've seen technology take and South Africa hasn't moved along with it. But as the technology's developed, it's been developed for non-technical users. Mm. So there's come about what I like to call a tectonic shift where globally law enforcement agencies have moved towards allowing non-technical investigators, um, you know, the, the experts in their field in terrorism, organized crime or commercial crime, they train them to be able to do some technical things. And you know, all of the, the hardware and software manufacturers have adopted this stance to allow for a non-technical investigator to do technical things. But the South African police, they're not there just yet. Okay. You know, so they still want you to be some fancy qualified expert to, to plug in a cell phone and download the info type of scenario. Yeah. They, they wanted to exist in, in you know, this very specialist area. You know, and they, I would say their, their primary concern is, but what happens if we go to court and you know, there's another expert? And mm-hmm. whilst there are some experts out there, you know, if, if we consider what it takes to be an expert, you know, just because I have a degree or I passed matric, that doesn't make me an expert automatically. The court has to recognize me. And my, my role as an expert is to take that technical information and, you know, dumb it down, so to speak, mm-hmm. for the layperson to allow the presiding officer to understand what it is that I'm trying to tell him. Because I'm, if I'm going to confuse the court with technical terminology, the next guy that comes along and explains it in a better way than I am, he's going to be recognized as the expert. Mm-hmm. I mean, inherently, the, uh, as much as technology is about advancing, is about refining the capability of the tool to do its primary task, it's also about refining the user-friendliness of that tool, isn't it? To make it something that can be utilized 
more broadly by people with that you don't have to have a really technical qualification to be able to use that because technology developing technology is developing the tool and developing the user experience at the same time isn't it and so the, what you're saying is the police don't really get that as yet they're, they're not there just yet yeah. so the one thing we've seen and we've proven it is that we, we're able to take detectives and train them to do technical things it's more difficult to take a technical person, you know, being a computer scientist or you know some sort of an IT nerd, and train them to be a detective because you know, police work detection, you know, it, it takes it takes a specific skill that's not always something that's easy to translate into a book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one is your know, intuition, gut feel, you know, the curiosity that's required. But when you consider from a technical point of view, if we just take coding, you know, there's logic. A to B to C to D, mm. but through an investigation, there's no timeline. You know, you you start with a investigative hypothesis, but as new information is introduced, you you have to, let's say, proverbially change your mind a couple of times whilst working on on any given case. So we've proven. On, on different occasions where we've taken technical people, people from serious violent crimes that are used to you know, hanging out the side of a speeding vehicle, chasing truck hijackers, um, whose basic uniform would include a bulletproof vest and R5. But we've taken them over the years and trained them to do certain things. And now some of the, the best rated cell phone analysts come from that serious violent crime environment. And what they do every day is just download cell phones, analyze the information that comes from a cell phone. Yeah. And they've been regarded as experts. I mean, absolutely. Uh, Francois Muller, who's sadly at the police now. With Chris, Delport. Chris Delport. And these are all students of mine that I trained you know, back in 2004, guys 2005. Guys I knew when they were working at murder and robbery units as detectives. Exactly. You know, they just had that interest. Mm-hmm. And I remember Francois used to use the most basic download just of the person's contacts of the SIM card. That's where he kind of started doing that. And it's kind of just, yeah, there you go. Now he's in the private sector. Now, I think that's my frustration is that SAPs, it's a slow-moving beast, and unfortunately, when it comes to technology, for various reasons, you cannot move slowly. Uh, you can move slowly when it comes to re, um, re-upping your licenses mm. for the programs you already have. You cannot move slowly when it comes to getting new things that you need because the technology has changed. And that's where my worry has always been that it's such a slow-moving beast that we're not getting the maximum use out of the technology that is, av- is available. So can I break it down? So basically, you provide latest law enforcement technologies to local law enforcement and private security because that was that a concise and then you have a group of companies i know forensic tools being one of those just break down what the different entities are that you're responsible for so so the the, the groups in in the company are currently risk diversion so risk diversion focuses primarily on digital forensics or the so-called cyber forensic environment. So that'll include cell phone forensics, computer forensics, enhancement of footage and CCTV images. Providing the services to do that. Services, tools, and training. training. So we we build the the business on three three pillars, if you would. So primarily, we want to sell the technology to uplift and empower law enforcement. So our clients include, but aren't limited to, let's say, the SADC region. Hmm. So we've got clients... uh, Kenya, Ghana, Nigeria, and then all of our near neighbors. Mm-hmm. And we sell them pretty much whatever the standard technology is that is currently in use by law enforcement agencies around the world. So you know, not a lot of development has come out of South Africa in the digital forensic space. So we have a look and we identify the industry-leading best practice tools available around the world, and then we represent those technologies here. Yeah. So most of those tools and technology we've sold and delivered either through you know, training services or products for you know, going on two decades. But like I said, you also though, provide that service yourself. I know we, the, we do, the, yes. The, Harry the Crusaders case that we had on our, on our show two weeks ago, three weeks, four weeks ago, we spoke about that. Uh, you did some, you yourself actually downloaded and testified in court about some of the downloaded information you got from devices there. That's correct. So we do offer, we do offer private lab services as well. And our, our primary focus is to support law enforcement. So whilst it would be great money to take your defense work, uh, we, we try and as much as possible, you know, support law enforcement um, because they are our primary client. So you know, some, some of the work that we do is pro bono. We're currently working on a murder case now. It's a Mokopani case. Um, there's some political infighting resulted in a murder of um, you know, some political figures and um, we're assisting them pro bono because we do understand that the wheel does turn very slowly and you know, some of the frustrations within the South Africa police is that I think it's a lack of leadership 
in that you know no one single person stands up and takes ownership for an entire space yeah. and you know the, the the i would say the time that it takes for you to introduce technologies uh, do the presentations get it into a procurement framework then you know that divisional commissioner moves oh. gets promoted goes on pension whatever the case may be so Sorry, Paul, back to your, your point about the group. We've got Risk Diversion, which focuses primarily in the digital forensics or the cyber forensic space. Then uh, I have a company called Forensic Tools. And Forensic Tools is more about crime scene. So, you know, that, that proverbial holy ground. So we sell technologies for the crime scene, uh, more of a triage type space. So we do uh, ballistics uh, scanner. So it's some novel technology that's, that's just being introduced now. It allows you to scan the fired cartridge casing on the crime scene and gives the investigator gun intelligence within a matter of minutes. Mm. They also do crime scene scanners. So we, we're lucky to be partnered with uh, Leica. So they do 3D uh, crime scene scanning, you know, high resolution using LIDAR mm. to basically create a 3D model of the crime scene and also log the presence of evidence with great accuracy. That, that thing, it does like a three-dimensional picture of the whole room. Oh, so yeah, it's almost, so cool. Like Re you can create, yeah, you can recreate the crime scene yeah. with millimeter precision, and link an exhibit to that particular spot. Click on it and shows you that particular exhibit. And, and you can I've do a virtual, that. you can do a virtual walkthrough. Um, and the, the technology is great because you can put a piece of equipment down, and uh, with a smaller unit, the BLK three sixty, it allows you to scan a sixty meter radius wow. in about four and a half minutes. And that no, gives no, you no, high, those things used to take like an hour or so. Absolutely, and you have to move it along and then knit everything together. Yeah. But these these devices are GPS aware, so it actually knows where it was in you know correlation to where it is, and then it knits the picture together for you automatically. So if you had like virtual reality goggles, you could literally be in that room. That that's 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 one of the key focus areas for Leica. So that oh. that smart city integration, the augmented VR, um, it's being used now to develop training models. And SAPS has had earlier versions of that type of stuff. Actually, I mean, since way when I was back in SAPS, so that the idea and, the, uh, and SAPS having that tech, it's already been there. It's not as if this is futuristic stuff. It's no. just gotten much better at SAPS. Well, it's, so it's, SAPS, it's SAPS sitting in someone's office anyway, at least. So uh, <laughs> SAPS have a, a technology that they use called Spheron, yeah. and that's just imaging. Okay. So it's not it's not the the lidar with a point cloud with a laser point cloud. Right. So they haven't adopted that yet. But you know the point is that the police have a hundred licenses of the crime scene drawing software that Leica produces. Um, but you know as usual it hasn't been renewed. Oh. We've had the opportunity making the, uh, the doing the TV stuff to kind of to to spend some time with Peter and see some of these technologies and it's just incredible. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, I mean, we'll get into this conversation about how well these things are applied in local law enforcement, especially with the police. Um, just to, just just round up, just kind of just round up the, how, how your what your whole universe your whole so, little universe uh, looks like. In, in forensic tools, we also do product development. So I hold a patent for a new type of fingerprint brush. So you know, not coming from that crime scene environment, um, you know, having so, been exposed to to these pieces of technology and tools, um, you know, I thought of a, a better way to apply fingerprint powder. On the crime scene. So you're also developing your own tech. We, That's we do. So we've developed our own fingerprint brush for which I hold a patent. And we've also developed a new fingerprint powder. And uh, the great thing about the fingerprint powder is that it fluoresces under standard UV, which means you don't have to use specialist crime scene lights. Um, and uh, it's naked to the visible eye. So I don't need to filter the, the, the light at all. And if you can see visible. it, you can it's visible to the naked eye. It's visible to the naked eye. It's visible to the naked eye. Okay. Um, so I, I develop those kinds of things as well. So you know, we've got a very short path in the office. So I get an idea drawn on a whiteboard and somebody more technical with more accurate information, like we're in the Northwest provinces. Beyond crayons. Beyond crayons, yes. Yeah. So I do the wax, wax crayon drawing, and then somebody comes and renders it into a, a CAD program. Uh, then we've got laser cutters and 3D printers, so we'll do some mock-ups and prototyping, and then you know, when it's ready for production, we'll move into another space. Uh, the other company I have in my group is a company called Officer Safety Technologies, and that's primarily focused on the private security industry. So there we sell things like body armor and helmets and night vision, um, thermal imaging. Uh, we're currently in the process of obtaining our 
license to trade in ammunition and firearms. Mm -hmm. So that'll allow us to address a specific requirement from our client base. So it, it's, a, it's a great business, you know, the private security industry being as big as it is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's, it's an array of tools and technologies. What's well, three or four times the size of the South African police in terms of just pure numbers of people, if I'm not mistaken? It, it is. And uh, they've, they've got a great regulatory framework. Um, unfortunately, there are, there are some you know, elements within the private security industry um, that's soured for everybody. So, you know, the, the big brands are doing good things. But when you get into the smaller markets, you know, the guys are cutting corners, not training their people properly, mm. you're not even paying their required subs to to CIRA, for example. And then the last company in my group I have uh, called Bishop Technologies. And it, it's a it's a GSM middleware company. So there's some, some technology that exists in that uh, company, which allows for the implementation of LBS at the cellular network. And LBS is location-based services. So we developed a piece of technology that when implemented at the service provider will allow the service provider to support law enforcement to track mobile devices. Right. Okay. And I think that's something you kind of, you and I spoke about it two, three years ago, just before COVID, I think if it's the same device that you're referring to. Uh, so, so there's hardware and there's software. Okay. So the software, if implemented at the service provider, uh, allows the service provider to, in real time, track the location of a subscriber. Um, and then there's also what they call uh, event-driven LBS. So event-driven LBS would be say that if certain conditions are met, then trigger a series of queries. So what I'm saying is that, let's say, for example, there's a rugby match at Loftus mm. and some critical event occurs. Bomb explosion, part of the stadium collapses. Um, the event-driven LBS allows you to say, well, take a snapshot of how many mobile devices were in that area 15 minutes before the critical event, during the critical event, and where are those mobile devices now to track you know, mobile devices potentially trapped under the rubble mm -hmm. uh, or people that have already moved off, or if it were, say, a terrorist attack, um, give me the mobile devices that were there during the commission of a crime and then moved away sort of whilst the, the crime was yeah. being committed. So that, that, you know, that potentially exists, um, but it exists only on the cellular network. And then there's some novel hardware, which is used more primarily for direction finding, you know, being able to physically identify a mobile device wherever. So that kind of so you kind of you cover the kind of the, the the whole landscape of law enforcement locally essentially. And what's really interesting is that you've been at it since technology has really kind of started to gain a footing in law enforcement in the world. You've been through the evolution of tech of of not only you know how law enforcement is managed and how you know how how capable it is over the last. 30 years, but then also applying techno the best possible technologies to that. I'm just curious in, you know, how different is the world that we're in now to when you started? I mean, I understand that obviously the technology is so much more sophisticated, but I'm talking about the environment. Just your thoughts on, on let's start with the police. You know, what do you feel that today the police are able to have embraced all of the potential that new technology offers to refine and improve the ability to be kind of good law enforcers? Short answer, no. I don't think they've embraced the technology. Okay. And it, it could be attributed to a couple of reasons. You know, one, I think the political will is not there. Mm. If you consider the way that the South African police is currently structured, you know, the bulk of their money goes towards VIP protection. Yeah, that, that that's the focus. That that's that's where they're spending. You that's told where me they're this. spending their money is VIP protection. Just uh, just to, to under, for the listener to understand this. So you've explained this to me before. What you're saying is is that if you take a hundred percent of the police's annual budget, the biggest number percentage out of that hundred percent goes to VIP services. Just after salaries. After salaries. Just after salaries, then it would be something like VIP protection. I mean, that really they is. They spend billions there. It's How do you feel about that, Jared? Not good. Um, I, I, I don't know why all these people need to have such levels of protection. I think it pisses off most of the public. When I see a blue light carnival, I get really irritated. Um, it's quite shocking. 
um, that they protect themselves to the T and the rest of us. Yeah, when as a when as we discuss so often in the podcast, I mean, you know, one of the scariest things I often say in the world to be is, for example, a black woman in South Africa. If you think about the levels of of gender based violence mm-hmm. and, and and what have you, um, you'd think that there were other places where the police could mm-hmm. be spending more money than on blue light brigades. It's it's yeah, it's kind of it's kind of scary. Sure, and I think if you consider. In the digital forensics environment, the last significant amount of money that was spent, uh, you know, and I don't have the exact figure, but I'm going to tell you the date would have been in around about May of 2018. That that was the last time the police, you know, bought licenses or trained anybody, you know, 2018. So we're what four or five years down the line. Does that, now, mean, does that mean licenses haven't been because obviously yeah, no, licenses ha, ha, licenses haven't been renewed can since we, 2018? Can we contextualize? Can you just explain how that practically, what the reality of that is practically at the local police station? So, at the local police station, no technology. No, okay, fine. No technology well, at the yeah. lab, then it's a police lab. So, at at the lab, uh, and you know, the technology is quite thinly spread around the countryside. So, let's say, for example, you have a cell phone. It's now, what's today, the 12th of December, Monday, a crime is committed. As we sit here now, the police do not have any active or valid licenses. So you get caught red-handed for choose a crime. And the evidence exists on your cell phone. And you so I murdered Gerard right now, and I film it on my cell phone. And you using the latest iPhone. Yes. The police would have no way to extract that information off of the new model of iPhone. Not anywhere in the country. Not anywhere and in the country. The, practically, that means that they, if there's a computer there with the software on it to do it, the hardware and the software required. But if they log in, enter their username and password, it says you have not paid your bill. Well, the, the license, it would indicate that the license has expired. So while the software would still be active in the sense that you could open your files and you may be able to extract data from old modeled phones but because there's no support and those software packages haven't been upgraded there's no way for them to connect or extract data from your iphone uh, they would never stand up in court if your license expired well you know that that opens up another debate because you know we've asked we've asked for for clarity on these things because the end users are still continuously using the expired license because there is nothing else they have nothing else, so they're still using the expired license. And just explain to people, so you'd buy whatever device we're talking about, but companies then require you to have a license that you pay every year, which gives you the ability to actually use it to its full extent. That's correct. And that's where SAPS tends to fall short, is that they don't, but in, in time, renew any of these licenses. And what they try and do is they try and do one single tranche of procurement. So in March of 2020, the State Information Technology Agency put out a tender, and it was a monster. It was it was to address just about all of the forensic requirements of the South African police. So they were looking for analytical software for the labs. They were looking for accident reconstruction. They were looking for uh, blood pattern analysis. They were looking for accident reconstruction. Then they were looking for cell phone forensics, computer forensics, uh, layered voice analysis. So you know, it, it was every piece of forensic software that had expired, they put into one single tender. And you know, as you can imagine, so if one company would have to be trying to provide all of that. No, it it, it oh. would be a multi. It would be a multi award. So you know, multiple vendors would be awarded because not there's no single company yeah, that can do say, all of it. We have to create a fake company, not a fake company, charge more and kind of sub everything up. And you've hit the nail on the head there. And that that's that's currently the situation that we're seeing is that you have what we call these atypical vendors. So I've been at it for you know more than two decades. You know, the, the technology vendors know me, the competitors know me, you know, the South African police know me. So you know, when they see a bit from me, it, it's reasonable to expect that these are my partnerships, that I've got the experience to be able to do it, and I've executed on these things before. But what we're seeing more and more is because the CSD environment, the, you know, the, uh, central, the central supply database, it, it is so fundamentally flawed. Um, you know, they, they sought to create a central register from which government can procure, but there's no just the sheer volume of people that are registered in CSD. There's no way to accredit or verify or vet people on the CSD. So what you would typically find is that somebody that's on CSD would bid for toilet paper and sanitary pads, um, you know, service dogs, training of fixed wing pilots, uh, remotely operated vehicles for the bomb disposal environment, and then you know, rebranding of police vehicles. And chances are pretty sharp that you know, they, they might even get it. So they. 
they, meaning the South African police, have created this beast of allowing you know, anybody from any, any walk, any sphere to be able to bid on specific pieces of work. And there's no barrier to entry. So you don't have to have a proven track record in the space. You just have to rock up. So like me, I'm registered on the CSD as a private individual, as a psychologist to provide services. And my company is also registered on the CSD to provide services. So I can bid on Let's something that's in your area. So if, if you want to, I mean, there's, there's a PPE tender. You're welcome. Yeah, join, join the PPE train. Does it help if you rock up and your uncle's a minister? <laughs> well, you know, not, not to put a finer point on it, it, it probably does, yes. You know, we've heard horror stories from you know, how these bid evaluation committees work. And... I've I've seen I've seen it in practice where one of the bids that that we that we're on uh, it took just over two and a half years to evaluate the bid. Uh, then it took another eleven months to sign the actual contract with the South African Police, and procurement still hasn't happened. And you know the end of the calendar year is upon us, and you know the end of the financial year will be within a matter of months. And then you know there's some other companies out there that. The, the tender would be published in January, for example, and then the award would be done in February and procurement takes place before the end of the financial year. And we're not talking about a small amount of money. We're talking you know, somewhere in the region of about 70 million rand. And it's just you know, one single company that bid on a specific item. Now, this is a lot to take in. It's a lot of information. And it's and I always, whenever I speak to Peter, I seem to leave these conversations feeling kind of terrified about the future. But um just and just want people to understand what this means for just the average member of public practically these what this reality means for the public just be very clear about that for the listener i think the the reality of the situation is that unless you have a full understanding of what the police are capable of doing you're not going to get any service secondly that if you don't have the ability to pay for private forensics you're probably not going to get much joy in your case, whatever it may be. And what, what we're seeing, you know, and it's routine where you have to go to a police station to open up a criminal case. That, that, that would be the minimum. You know, so once the, the crime's been committed and you've survived the trauma of being hijacked or a home invasion or whatever the case may be, you, you have to open a case. Um, you know, the, the police aren't really sharp at coming out and doing this for you. So often if there's a financial loss that's been suffered, so let's say it's a housebreaking, you know, you might have been fortunate enough not to be at home, but you have to now go to the police station and open up a, a case for the reference number in order to process the claim. Mm. One of the things that we're seeing more and more is that there's this power struggle currently underway, and this is at the front line. At the front line policing level, there's, there's this power struggle where you have to convince the police officer that a crime has been committed. You know, where the, the frontline officer, his, his primary directive is, a, I would say, a public relations function. You know, he's there to assist you to navigate you know, the administrative labyrinth of you know, how it works in terms of getting a case number registered and what the next steps are. And we see where we've supported clients with, let's say, identity theft or potential hacking or ransomware, whatever the, the case may be, uh, and there's a financial loss. They report it to their banks to say, mm, my account's been compromised and some money's been moved out of my account. The bank's saying, great, we've noted it, but we need you to register this with the South African police because we would ultimately need to obtain bank statements or opening documentation from different banks, whatever the case may be. And it's at that point where the wheels start coming off because when you walk into the community service center of whatever police station. I hate that name. You, you've got a, you know, what, what happened to charge office? You, know, you, you walk into that space and there's either a student constable or you know, a jaded sergeant who's been there for too many years. And you know, that's where the power struggle starts because you, know, you have to go and ask them, please, can you help me? Yeah. And then you know, he or she might be on the phone to DSTV trying to sort out their you know, multi-choice account and you, know, you just need to stand and wait. And once you, you've, you've explained to them the scenario and you say, well, listen, you know, my bank account's been hacked and money's been stolen, you know, the generic answer is, well, you've got to go to the bank. It's a banking problem. It's got nothing to do with the police. Go to the bank. And then, you know, again, another 15 minutes later of trying to explain to them and say, but, you know, I've been to the bank and they've asked me to get a case number. You know, then this guy is so out of his depth because they've, they've got no experience. You know, that training hasn't trickled down. It's not something that's been taught at the fundamental layer of, you know, the police college that, that you have to take in through that process to say, well, what happened? And then, you know, where did the crime, where was the crime committed? Mm. Well, in the internet. Where, you know, where's that? Yeah. So you've got this constant battle. And, and we've, we've heard horror stories and we've experienced it once or twice where, 
you arrive with a with a typed statement to open up a docket, and the police officer said, "No, we don't. We don't accept typed um, uh, statements." I've heard that. Yeah. Even if it's fully within the the requirements of a of an affidavit, they still say you can't have it. And they made one of somebody that I upload seven rewrite the whole bloody thing. Imagine how many people are listening to this podcast now. That this just this starts to this resonates with this resonates with everyone, doesn't it? Because we all experience this at some level. Uh, and, just and to hear someone like Peter be so clarity, put, put it into the, such a the, the, clear the, manner. Yeah, and yeah, uh, we'd, we'd have to go find it. But yeah. if we go to have a look at what it says about a statement, it has to, it, the, the, the word, or the, let's say the, the, the phrasing is that it has, to, it has to be under your own hand, which means that you have to physically sign the document. Mm. It doesn't say it has to be handwritten. Yeah. It just says a statement under your own hand. I can just imagine being in a police station, having an engagement with the person at the, what is it? I didn't even know this name. Community Service Center. At the Community Service Center. I can just in my mind imagine what that conversation, I think everyone can imagine what that conversation goes like, trying to say to the guy, no, it is perfectly plausible for me to give you a printed copy of my affidavit or whatever. You can imagine the nightmare that you're walking into. The the horror stories are that, you know, you've got retired police officers that left a senior, you know, senior ranking officers who now work in, in corporate South Africa. And they're fully capable of creating their own docket. So what they do is they, they do the investigation in-house mm. with statements, with evidence, with copies of documentation, with CCTV footage, and they build a, a, a docket. And uh, I mean, one horror story was we supported a client in enhancing CCTV footage of a, a robbery that took place at their business. And the footage was great. And the security manager, you know, a retired police officer, he built this docket and he even had a, a docket cover completed the old document, took it to the police station to register, just to register the document and say, here, I've got, I know where your suspects are, they work for me, they'll be at the office on Monday, here's all the proof you need. And, um, you know, that, I think you said it was a sergeant standing behind the, the service desk, you know, took, took a look at the docket cover and said, where did you get this? This is state property. I'm going to charge you for being in possession of state property. And then subsequently took that whole case docket, threw it in the dustbin and said, okay, now we start again, name. And it, it's just power struggle. And I don't know if it's, you know, it's because the guy at the front of the queue, uh, you know, is, is a high-ranking official that you know, might be the minister's grandson. But, you know, the guy at the bottom of the food chain, which is the frontline officer, you know, who sits in the community service center, um, eking out his meager salary, they, they might feel, well, you know, there's no real opportunity for me. So the only thing I do have is power. And they, they try they try and you know, exact that little bit of you know, mainstream power that's available to them, and uh, yeah, I, I can to your point saying you know, if you're a black female in South Africa and you're going to a police service center, uh, community service center, and report a crime, a rape, for example, I mean I think the chances are better than good that yeah. you know, the, the guy who's helping you might want you know to take a run at you as well. And yeah. we've heard these horror stories time and time again. Sure. So, yeah, I guess coming back to the text, <laughs> so, what would you say is the, the, the coolest piece of tech you've ever sold to the police? And what's the coolest piece of tech you wish you could sell to the police that you have? The coolest piece of tech? Well, everything we sell is cool. <laughs> hmm. I need to pause on that. I, I think in the last five years, some of the coolest tech we've sold would be uh, this. CCTV enhancement, mm-hmm. the ability to take some really bad quality footage and make it workable. Mm-hmm. So there's a software suite called Amped 5. Uh, that, that's really, it's game changing. Because if you consider how much CCTV footage is available, you know, at your home, at mm-hmm. your office, everywhere you go, there's CCTV footage. Unfortunately, the quality is not great, but yeah. you know, Amped 5, I'd say, is, is probably one of those things that immediately changed the game a lot for us. The cell phone forensic technology, it, it's a, there's a, a peak and a trough. So, you know, for a couple of months, it's fantastic. And this, the cell phone manufacturers haven't cottoned on to the security vulnerability that exists in order to lock the phone up so we can't get access to it. But there's, there's some really great stuff coming and out there. No, I mean, I, I, Peter's done a demo where he took, where it was license, the license plate on a car. Okay? And I promise you, this photograph or the, the image of the vehicle is in the car's in profile. It's the side of the license plate. With your naked eye, you cannot mm. see the license plate. But this technology somehow 
managed to show you the back of the car and what the license plate number is. Can we? You must send me though, because I can show that specific example. So, of so just that, yeah, that's the a before and the after. Of, just incredible, Gerard. Yeah. yeah, so it's a, it's It'll a blow it's your a mind. Perspective correction. So you you can actually change your perspective of a, of a subject in a photograph. But it's like from this angle, and then it shows you it. It's it's amazing. I hear you about talking about the tech, but I want to go a bit back to the to the to the to the landscape again. Mm. The management of that, the this fact that the what are your thoughts on? Because it's something we touched on again last week. Is this how how today there are more generals in the police than there were generals in the Allied forces at the uh, during World War Two? That there's this, the police have become this incredibly top-heavy, where the the salary bill is astronomical because they've all elevated. They basically promote all the police have promoted themselves into great management positions where the salary bracket is nice and high. But but <sighs> you'd think more managers would make a better managed organization. What what is your thoughts on just? How the what the police structure is currently from a top, you know, as far as it's a being a top heavy kind of organization. So I, I think there's a there's a deficiency in, in leadership. Um, those in senior management positions you know, either know and don't care or they just don't simply know. And when you talk to some of these you know, generals, of which I think there are now more than 300 generals in the police, mm. um, you, know, you have some environments where the station commissioner is a general. Yeah. You know, and you know, 30 years ago, the station commissioner was you know, nowhere even close to a general. You, you'd heard of a general, but you'd never seen one. Mm. You know, the closest you got to that was a brigadier, and then the brigadier was you know, just this much shy of, I don't know, the almighty. But more but, managers, you'd think more management. I, I, I don't think it is. You know, they, they sit in these strat strategy meetings, and they host these events, you know, and they stand up, and they've got these fantastic buzzwords. But when you boil it down to, you know, do they know what it is that they're presiding over? The short answer is no. Yeah. They move, they move the, 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 the generals around. So today, you know, you were head of finances. Tomorrow, you might be head of ORS. Um, you know, and ORS being you know, the operational response service. So that would be your water wing, your air wing, special task force. You know, so you, you've got these leaders that don't know who they're leading or what they're leading and unfortunately we're getting to a, a period in in time now where you know the the good old guys you know that have got 40 years experience that you know, they wrote the proverbial book they're leaving they're retiring yeah. and there's there's no drive to retain these guys and there's no drive to move them to let's say to the training college where they could for the last five years of their service pass over some knowledge there's certainly no passing over the knowledge yeah there's, the there's knowledge. no there's no retention I mean, here is a case in point sitting beside us whose knowledge has evaporated from the police practically on a day-to-day -day basis and unfortunately the way that the, the police have even created their their own problems with procurement for example where in, in years gone by you know i could get in my car and i could drive around and i could knock on the doors of end users and show them hey look at this piece of technology does x y and z and they'd express an interest in it and you know they would write a motivation to their boss and their boss would approve it because there, there might be some funds available and you know it, it sounds like something that's going to change their, their investigative capability and you know, ultimately then procurement to take place now you you can't approach the end user and we understand i mean you know corruption's rife throughout the entire government. So now you have to be invited to present at what they call an industry day. And then you have an hour to present you know, your technology, but the, the session's held virtually. So how, how do I demonstrate a ballistics microscope virtually? So once once you've done that, you know, then you can apply to have access to an end user. So, you know, from a from a supply chain point of view, there's there's something called demand management. So the end users submit their needs, but you know, with the end users not being exposed to conferences, uh, they're not being exposed to end users. They're not doing their own research. Yeah. So whilst police have a very mature research division, 
they're not going out there and looking at you know what the latest technologies are in cell phones or computers or you know, audio enhancement or voice comparisons. You know that that's still my job, but the way that they've they've segregated the technology management environment from the supply chain environment from the end user. You have to start convincing nine people that this is great technology. Where you know, in years gone by, you would have to convince maybe three. Mm. And money is not a problem. You know, the South African police send back money to Treasury of unspent funds because they simply don't know how to spend the money properly. Unless it's VIP services. So you know, I'm 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 almost of the opinion, and and the the thing that that would need to be done, and I I do it on a regular basis. If I re I review police's spending habits so on the website there's a part of the website where you can go and have a look at quotations that were issued and paid so saps can under a certain threshold um, spend money on a quotation basis without the absence of a procurement contract and if you go and have a look on this particular page of the South police it tells you where they're spending money and they spend an inordinate amount of money on events and Mm. you know Toilet hire and T-shirts busts and, and marketing and materials and stuff like that. And yeah. it was reported recently that the South African police spent 600 million rand in one year on accommodation, travel and entertainment. Mm. 600 million rand. That is 10 times more than they've, than they've spent in the last eight years on cybercrime. <laughs> ten, 10 times more. Easy. <laughs> Yet, the, you know, the, the strategic plan says that cybercrime is, is within the top three priority of the South African police. Now, I, I had a discussion with one of the media liaison officers for one of the provinces. Um, and he, first of all, he took great glee in, 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 tele- in sharing the fact that, you know, we must deal with him if we want to get access to active servant police. And if he's not there... Nothing. Well, you know, you know, he was he celebrated the fact that he's responsible. He's the guy to speak to. If I'm not in the office, there's nobody else you can speak to. I'm the guy. So if he's die, if he gets you know COVID for two weeks, then his department ceases. Now this was kind of a point of pride in his when I was chatting to him. But then um, he also brought up in that conversation the fact that he, you know, he's aware, you know, that that organized crime have been putting their members through police training for decades. And um, now my point is that when he talked about this, he didn't talk about it in where, as you'd hope, where it would be like, so we know we're aware of this. Oh, and by the way, we're doing X, Y, Z to combat that. There was no mention of the combating it, simply that this is a reality. Now, I've also asked one of my personal kind of favorite questions to ask people once while we've been doing the the tv interviews and what have you is do you believe that law that the police specifically as it stands today the state of the police do you believe the police can be fixed and and set on the right path from where they are now invariably the answer has been generally not very positive when i've asked people that question both saps Current saps, ex-saps, non-saps, just a bit of everyone, because we speak to everyone across the gambit, don't we, across our different programs. Where do you stand on that? You know, what, are we, what, what do you think the police can do, if anything? Is there, a, is there hope? Is there hope for law enforcement in South Africa? Because these conversations, I, I don't find, find a lot of it when I think about this stuff. Can it be fixed? Yes. Okay. Given time and money. Yeah. And, and the will. And will. You know, the will, the will is the question, is that um, I believe, and this is my own conspiracy theory. Do we need to lower our voice a notch to discuss <laughs> conspiracy? Do that, yeah. my, my theory is that there's a, a narrative being driven within the South African police to potentially outsource everything. Okay. Looking for you know, a big brand to emerge from the wings, you know, with DNA capabilities, with you know, a whole lot of stuff to be able to come to SAPS and say, we're going to immediately reduce your backlogs and we'll take over all of your DNA testing and we'll do X, Y, and Z. And you know, it, it would be a well-known company, somebody that's you know, affiliated or closely aligned to the now president or potentially the next ex-president. Um, yeah, that, that's what I suspect is happening. So procurement on a large scale isn't happening. 
Um, and a, again, my, my evidence that I would use to, to support this would be having a look at the tenders that have been put out that have been cancelled. And it's either as uh, a drive to say, well, we've put, put the tenders out, nobody responded, or the companies that responded don't have a track record, or we've got no money for this. So there, there, there are a few critical areas within the South African police that are affected by this. One, the DNA space. And I mean, we all know about the DNA. You know, they've got issues with equipment recruitment, the training of, of their, their lab people, um, you know, the consumables, you know, all, all of the different tests and you know, the, the disposable consumables that they need on a daily basis. So we, we know about that. But you know, there, there's other things. If you have a look, currently there's no, there's no contract in place for the provisioning of basic uniform. So there was a tender that was put out and it was subsequently cancelled. There was a tender that was put out for the servicing of state vehicles and spare parts and it was cancelled. So if you now drive past the, um, the garage in Silverton, there's probably 200 vehicles just standing there. Mm. You know, those are vehicles that need to be serviced, need to be put back on the road again. And you know, what, what, is, what is the narrative? Is a big listed company that has a national footprint, potentially a private security company, you know, are they going to amend the private security officer's bill? Are they going to introduce you know, some sort of peace officer narrative allowing you know, certain accredited individuals to make arrests to support the South African police as they currently are doing. I think if you read every newspaper where there's something significant, there's a private security company on the back end of it, whether they've supplied air support or logistics or vehicles for the detectives working on a task team. So, you know, slowly but surely, the, the police have allowed the privatization of certain functions. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, not, it's not capture per se. It's just that if the private sector don't do it, the police aren't going to get around to it. And the, the one thing that probably needs to change is that the focus of the South African police needs to change. Currently, the focus of the South, South African police, in my opinion, is not law enforcement. It's voter appeasement. That's what it is. Yeah. Let's have a look now. Now we're, now we're getting into this critical part. Yeah. You know, this, this weekend coming, you know, throats are going to be slit, deals are going to be done. Um, you know, the VIP protection unit is going to be out on mass. And when the protests start up again next year, you know, as they do, then public order policing, visible policing comes out in force. And what do they do? They throw three or four million rounds of rubber baton rounds at you know, yeah. the general public. That's voter appeasement. You know, people yeah. see the police responding to that, but the a rubber bullet has never aided the, in the capture of anybody. The commissioner becomes very, very visible on the ground, speaking to the people across a crowd. I mean, yeah, and I think the minister, minister, he suffers from an identity mean, yeah. crisis. Um, I'm not sure if he knows one morning to the next whether he's the minister or whether he's the commissioner. Sure. Um, because, yeah, he flits around in a convoy of armored vehicles. But yeah, if, if, we, if we come back to the, to the, the very heart of what we're talking about, you know, the technology, yeah. the technology exists. It's, it's freely available you know, from a commercial's point of view to allow the South African police to do lots of things. You know, I have a, what I call an ecosystem, and the eco ecosystem exists across different divisions in the South African police. And the primary focus of the ecosystem is at the crime scene. You know, allow the first responder to do certain things on the crime scene, whether it's capturing and preserving evidence from a cell phone or CCTV system, or being able to take down witness account with some, with some accuracy or some detail. The technology is available for that. If you talk to detectives, you know, they're all saying that if I seize a cell phone as part of my investigative life cycle, it might be six months before I get that report. But in the meantime, my case is ongoing yeah. and that case gets withdrawn because there's no evidence. Yeah. But and the, the backlog must be vast. It, it's huge. It's huge. I mean, even, even if they get all their licenses today, it, it's going to take another nine months for them to catch up the backlog. Yeah. And you know, notwithstanding the new devices that are coming in every single day. Yeah. Okay, well, look, I mean, we've spoken a lot about this particular topic, but it's hard not to kind of be overwhelmed by this topic and kind of harp on about it a bit because it is, it really does, it's a good way of illustrating where a lot of the challenges lie 
with local law enforcement, you know, how the best possible practices or the best possible tech are applied and the will to what the will is to apply them. And this discussion doesn't leave me with a lot of optimism about that. Although, like you say, there is you feel there is a potential path to it, granted that there becomes somehow the will. I mean, I guess ultimately it comes down to the public and the people, doesn't it? It's like load shedding until, you know, it, it amazes me that people aren't already out on the streets in th in their tens of thousands, you know, protesting the, the challenges there. Um, ultimately, as a citizen, as a, as, as a citizenship or as a citizenry, um, at some point, the responsibility has got to come down to all of us to to become more aware of these realities. And hopefully we can contribute to that through these kinds of discussions. But then ultimately, at some point, we're all going to have to act on it somehow and and figure out ways to, to, to contribute to fixing all of the problems. Um, Peter, where, where is the, what are you doing to be, to help to um, shift and change the environment that you serve? And what is your, you know, what are your, if you were to paint a, a, a good path for the next five years, what would be some of the kind of key things that you think local law enforcement, especially the police, what are the key things that they would need to do to right some of the challenges that you come up against in your kind of in your world? So I think what I'm currently doing is keeping an eye on the horizon, having a look at what our international partners are doing from a technology development point of view. Uh, and how they're implementing it within the law enforcement agencies. Something specific would be looking at how, you know, the large NYPDs, London Metropolitan Police, you know, Hong Kong Police, how they're adopting technology and where they're using it. And, you know, the key phrase that emerges from all of this is something called area forensics. So that means move the forensic capability to where the crime's being committed, not the other way around. Yeah. So that, that's something that I'm pushing quite hard. You know, I'm, I'm pushing for this, this ecosystem where in technology that can be used on the crime scene. So like for example, our ballistic imaging technology, uh, ballistic IQ, or the crime scene scanning, or the portable cell phone forensic technology that you that can download a cell phone on the crime scene. You know, when we think about cell phones, we immediately think, ah, oh, it's the suspect or it's accused, but you've also got your witness and you've got mm. the victim. And they don't want to be deprived of their phone for three weeks yeah. to download one message or to you know, take one video mm. clip that, that was created as a result of the CIT. So, you know, there's this constant education of triage on the crime scene, area forensics, frontline forensics. Mm. That, that's what I'm doing. And, you know, every, every presentation, every meeting that I have, you know, I start off with a slide which shows the, the ecosystem as it exists. And within this ecosystem, you know, there are some key parts. The crime scene being the most important part right at the beginning, because that's where you've got the opportunity to interview witnesses, secure and collect and preserve evidence. But in fact, the most important part of this is the prosecution. You know, a lot of people forget that if I've made my arrest based on whatever good evidence I have, that's only half of the job done. Of the next part of the job is to take a prosecutor and lead you know, him or her or them through you know, this labyrinth of evidence. It might be complex, it might be simple. And then to convince the presiding officer to say, well, you know, this is my interpretation of whatever evidence I've collected, be it a fingerprint, a fine cartridge casing, a cell phone evidence, you know, an email that, that was retrieved off of a server, whatever the case may be. The National Prosecuting Authority is the ultimate beneficiary and us as the general public, obviously. Mm. But the NPA are also you know, falling behind in the sense that they're not driving the narrative hard enough to hold the police accountable. Yeah. Because, you know, they answer to everything now. It's just, well, we'll postpone the case until we can't and then we just withdraw the case. Yeah. But, you know, what I think needs to change is that, you know, the South African police needs to sort of sit up and understand that they're not going to be able to recruit 500, you know, computer scientists to come and join the cyber ranks, for example. If we talk about just, you know, the Cyber Crime Act and the new crimes that have you know, been, been created. They need to have a look at the existing force of detectives, of which there are more than 25,000, and take these individuals and develop them. Yeah. And it's been proven. We've done it on many, many occasions where we've been able to take non-technical people and train them to do technical things, and the successes are there. Yeah. And then it's operationally usable right then during the investigation. Exactly. Six weeks, eight weeks down the line or longer. 
Okay, well, I think today's conversation kind of turned into a bit of a general discussion about how well kind of technology is being adopted and, and, and adapted in, South, in the South African law enforcement context. And there's certainly cause for concern and lots to think about. And again, I hope that we're at least you know, helping to start to inform the public out there about what some of the real re- yeah. cha- challenges are for folks who are kind of deep in it and who have built, you know, who have lived a lifetime in this environment. I think the obvious question for people is, oh, if we have all this technology, if it's available, why are we just using it? And I think that... Because we haven't paid the license, Chana. The colors and the reasons why. Yeah. Um, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, again, like like our conversation last week, I feel like, Peter, this is probably the first of a number of conversations we should have together because it would be lovely to, as well to do a real deep dive into what the coolest bits of tech that are out there are and where's the future? What is the next, you know, are, you know beyond LIDAR, beyond DNA? What are the things that are really going to be changing law enforcement in the, in the future? Um, which I'm sure Peter is one of those people that has a great a great grasp on that so hopefully we can invite you back for further discussions it would also be nice i know you do demo days and stuff like that um it would be lovely to come along maybe bring a camera and to create a bit of content on the ground maybe we can do kind of a exactly maybe into on for the for the zulu alpha firearms channel as well um so i think a lot a first conversation hopefully of many um and and um hopefully we can continue to just enlighten the public as to kind of how you know not just about the stories and how police apply their investigative knowledge but also this part of it how the future is 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 affecting the police and how technology and what have you is applied and how it's changing the world that we live in i guess um any final thoughts gerard today no any final i I wish the best of success because that would mean a lot of success for the police exactly if they just adopted some of the tech that's available yeah it doesn't have to be invented it's there and they just have to purchase what what is what where 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 do we leave this conversation peter well well i think uh one i should have my head read professionally (laughs) because you know i'm still willing to do business with uh yeah i made a standpoint i'm not going to do business with government because it's just too frustrating yeah but yeah, you know, you know, I do it out of passion, understanding. You know, exactly. I'm still at the heart of it. This five-year-old boy that wants to be a policeman. So, yeah. although I can't, I can't serve. I can try at least you know, make sure that they use the, the the coolest gadgets on the crime scene. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Have a good um, have a good day, everybody. Thank you for listening, everybody. Um, please do visit our YouTube page and subscribe. Search Profiler Africa. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. Simply search Profiler. Uh, share, 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 please, guys. You can engage with us on our social media pages. Our Twitter and Instagram handle is at Profiler Africa. Please also join the group on Facebook. Um, yeah, and uh, guys, don't forget to pay your licenses, okay? Because um, if you want the tech, you've got to pay the bucks, unfortunately. Unfortunately, it's been a great conversation. We'll be back again next week with more Profiler. And uh, thank you very much. And uh, rest easy. Yeah, rest easy, everybody. Thank you. Stay safe. Bye.